Well, friends, we do turn our attention back to uh, the Gospel of Mark this morning. And uh, as we begin, we're going to read the word aloud and we're going to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. So if you would please stand together as you're able. Our text this morning is Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. I'm going to read it, and then we'll, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and we'll respond together. Thanks be to God. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin here uh, this morning, friends, I want to make a quick note about something to you. Uh, I am not feeling well. I have been, uh, I've been sick the last couple days. We've had a stomach bug that's gone around at our house for the last few weeks, and uh, I was the recipient of it over the weekend. And uh, I'm recovering, but I am feeling a little bit wimpy this morning. Uh, I mentioned that to you because uh, for a couple reasons. One, if I seem a little bit more subdued than normal here, Nothing is wrong. I just don't feel great. Uh, Also, I'm going to try to stick more closely to my notes than normal so that I don't confuse myself. Uh, And also, we're we're probably not going to make it through this entire passage this morning. Uh, This may end up being a a two-part sermon. Um, I don't want to overtax myself or overtax you. So, uh, with that being said, we pick up the text here in Mark chapter 2 in the midst of ongoing controversy about the Lord Jesus. As I've said before in chapter 1, really Mark introduces us to the Lord, and then in chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 3, there is this controversy surrounding Jesus and who He is and, and, and what He's doing. There are five episodes in this sort of series of controversy in chapter 2 in the beginning of chapter 3, and this is the third of those five our text this morning. First, we we saw that there was controversy about Jesus pronouncing forgiveness. Did he have the authority to pronounce forgiveness for someone's sins? Then, as we looked at last Sunday, there is controversy about the company that he keeps. He's not like uh, the other teachers of the law who separated themselves from those considered sinners. Instead, he willingly sat down and, and ate with them. And today the controversy is about what he doesn't do. Specifically, he doesn't have his disciples fast 
as the Pharisees do. Now, the controversy in this episode really follows the same sort of pattern as the previous controversies. Jesus does something that is revolutionary. He is criticized for it, and he responds in a way that silences his critics. Now, his response, as always, is instructive to us. He teaches not only how life with him is to look, how it is different, but he also explains why, which is especially significant. It is vitally important for us as Christians that we, we understand not only what the Christian life entails, but why it is that way. Those of you who have been around in the church long enough, you recognize that apostasy and spiritual declension, a turning away from the truth of the gospel, and a true Christian life. It usually comes through a sort of bridge generation. There is a generation that is taught to carry on the traditions, but they're not taught why. And the generation that follows them, well, they don't bother with the traditions. They don't see the importance of it because they don't know why. And so we pay special attention not only to our Lord's example and what He did, but why He did it and His explanation here. As I said, this controversy that we're going to look at this morning involves fasting, and the criticism is that he doesn't have his disciples fast as the Pharisees and John's disciples do. And his response to that criticism comes in the form of three parables, three sort of metaphors, one about a wedding, one about garments and patches, and another about wine and wineskins. This is increasingly, through the gospel, this is his pattern of communication, parables and word pictures like this. And also, as we're going to see in this text, he responds on sort of two levels. First, with this parable about the wedding feast, he responds on a surface level, but then he goes deeper in addressing the garments and the wineskins and a deeper purpose there. That also increasingly is sort of his pattern as we go through the gospels. Both layers of his response here teach us a vital principle about what it looks like to live with Christ in this age. I think we're probably only going to get to the first one this morning having to do with this wedding feast. And the principle that I want to point out to you is that the Christian life in this age is very much marked by both sorrow and by joy. To live as Christians, to live in light of the truth in this age, is to live a life that is characterized in some ways at the same time by sorrow and by joy. Now let's look at the text together. Verse 18 begins this way. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some of you are familiar with the, the practice of fasting, particularly as it is described in the Old Testament. Fasting was essentially, to put it simply, it was to abstain from food and even from drink for a set period of time, a day, a week, a month, 40 days. The purpose of fasting was multi-layered. Uh, the purpose, uh, at, sometimes it involved grief over loss, mourning, over disaster, sometimes it involved sorrow over present circumstances, sometimes it involved 
uh, petition, uh, expectation, uh, a, a sort of pleading prayer for the future. You remember Queen Esther called her, her associates to fast with her before she went to uh, King Ahasuerus to talk about Haman's plot. Fasting is, is always a form of self-denial, a form of sort of willing humiliation of self, a lowering of self. The Old Testament prescribes one day of fasting annually uh, for God's people. In Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 to 34, in a description of the, the way that the Day of Atonement, this annual feast, was to be recognized and uh, observed, the Lord tells the people that they are to fast that day. Uh, they are to afflict themselves, some translations say. Uh, but it's very clearly a reference to fasting. Once a year for one day, God's people, the faithful, were to fast on the Day of Atonement. Now, between when the book of Leviticus was written and uh, the book of Mark was written, uh, the Pharisees uh, had begun the practice of fasting not only once a year, uh, but they had increased the frequency of fasting in Jewish life um, all the way up to twice a week. You remember in uh, Luke chapter 18 when the Lord Jesus is telling the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector there and which one goes home justified. When the Pharisee stands up, he says, in, in articulating his righteousness, he says, I fast two times a week. It was a, a common practice then. They had, this is, and this was the way the Pharisees worked on a number of levels, in, in trying to uphold the Word of God more and more carefully, they added and added and added to the rules. You know, they set the fence, a man-made fence, out so much further than what God has actually said, supposedly to protect what God has actually said. But, as is often the case, by thinking to improve on what the Scriptures had said, they had really corrupted them. You remember in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord Jesus tells His disciples and the crowds there, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. That's a reference to the Pharisees. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So not only had they uh, multiplied exponentially the number of times someone was to fast, but they had really changed what fasting was all about, and they made it about themselves and sort of parading their own righteousness. We should be reminded of that principle that the Reformers articulated so often. We're to say what the Scriptures say and no more. We do not help God by adding to His Word. Now, John's disciples, evidently, at least some of them, had adopted this practice of the Pharisees. Though I think we can assume without quite the degree of hypocrisy. You remember... The movement that John the Baptist had begun, the, 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 what he was preaching, was, it was anticipatory. It was looking forward to Jesus, but it was very much about repentance and contrition, a humbling of self, a denying of self, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It would make sense that John's disciples were, were those who fast often, maybe even fast twice a week. Now, <clears throat> we go back to verse 18 in the text. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, that is Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
Evidently, Jesus' disciples were not practicing this sort of fasting, and people hadn't noticed. And so they want to they find out why. Now, the fact that they asked this question is not an indication that Jesus had taught his disciples not to fast at all. I mean, you remember he himself fasted. Matthew chapter 4, when he's in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, he fasts a full 40 days and 40 nights. And that passage that I just read from Matthew chapter 6, he goes on to say, you know, when, well, he said in that verse, verse 16, when you fast, don't fast like the hypocrites do with the face to demonstrate how holy you are. Uh, he's instructing them, when you fast, fast like this. So he's not told his disciples not to fast. Likely what's happening is that his disciples just didn't fast twice a week in the showy fashion of the Pharisees. Spending all day walking around with a deliberately miserable look on their face so that everybody who sees them would know how pious and serious they are about spiritual things. It's likely that Jesus just didn't have his disciples doing that. But this is clearly a criticism from the Pharisees, from the scribes, an accusation of worldliness about Jesus a lack of seriousness about the way that he lived his life, a lack of appropriate gravity and the piety that it indicated. You remember, friends, the, the religion of the scribes and Pharisees was, was one of asceticism. It was, it was self-denial. It was austerity and, and separation that marked their understanding of what godliness was all about. Their lives were, were defined by avoiding certain foods, avoiding certain people, avoiding certain behaviors, and they used religious ritual to broadcast how different and superior they were to everybody else around them. To them, the world was this, this cesspool and in their, their severity and self-denial, they demonstrated that they were above it all. Well, Jesus wasn't like that. He didn't keep himself at arm's length from sinners. He didn't teach his disciples to engage in this twice-a-week fasting that really was just a public display of holiness and mourning. Well, why didn't he? That's the question. And he does answer their question. And he answers them first with a parable about a wedding. Verse 19, Jesus says, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I call this a parable. It's kind of a mini parable. It's really just a metaphor. Jesus is referring to wedding guests and a bridegroom, which are, are things that we're not unfamiliar with, although in the first century, in the ancient Near Eastern tradition, a wedding was much difficult, much different. In some ways, maybe it was difficult. It was a much more drawn-out affair than what we're accustomed to in our day. There was much anticipation and celebration involved in a wedding celebration. And the focus was not so much on the ceremony as we are focused today, but it was on the celebration. 
There was a whole lot of preparation and anticipation going on with the guests, waiting for the bridegroom and the bride to arrive with their wedding party. And then when they did arrive, there would be seven full days of feasting that were celebrated. Seven full days of feasting. I mean, some of you all feel very uncomfortable taking seven days off work once a year. Imagine seven days of feasting for a wedding celebration. Seven days. Once this great feast had begun, it wasn't a time to fast. It wouldn't be appropriate to fast at a wedding celebration. Not only would it be, it wouldn't be appropriate to do so, in, in a sense, it'd be wrong to do so. That's a wrong place to be fasting. That's a place to be feasting. That's the point that Jesus is making. The, the comparison is clear. He himself is the bridegroom, and his disciples are the guests. Now, John the Baptist used this very same word picture in describing Jesus and himself. You remember in John chapter 3, he says, when the the friend of the bridegroom rejoices to hear the voice of the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom who had come. Now, evidently, some of John's disciples had missed this. But you remember, friends, Israel had waited long years for the arrival of the bridegroom. The bridegroom who is their God. In the Old Testament, in those times of waiting and anticipation, those times of, of promises made yet not fulfilled, the Lord often refers to Himself as the husband to His people and refers to His people as the bride whom He loves. In Isaiah chapter 54, He says it crystal clear in verse 5, Your Maker is your husband. And there was this promise that He would come and make all things right. That He would come and His kingdom would come with Him. That a husband would not forget his bride. And so God would not forget His people. There was this anticipation that God would come to them. Would restore their fortunes and their blessing. And then after many long years of waiting, that celebration was to begin. Now, what Jesus was saying here is that that long-anticipated moment has actually arrived. Their God is really in their midst. You remember a few months ago when we looked at Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus begins to preach the gospel and says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Meaning the King has come. The Messiah, the Christ who is God Himself is standing in your midst. The bridegroom's come. And here, these disciples are like guests at the wedding feast. This is not a time for mourning and fasting. This is a time for rejoicing because the celebration has begun. In fact, just like at a real wedding celebration, to fast now would in some sense be wrong. Because here we stand in the midst of the bridegroom. Now, I think we're right to understand that even Jesus' own disciples did not understand this fully yet, but Jesus clearly did because He describes Himself in this fashion. Now, again, Jesus doesn't condemn fasting as a practice. 
What he's condemning is the misinterpretation of the times that the Pharisees and scribes were guilty of. As he's going to do later on in the Gospels as well. You remember in Luke chapter 12, he tells them, you can, you can understand the weather. You can read the weather properly. When the clouds are a certain way, you know there's a storm on the horizon, but you can't read the times that you're living in. He's telling them this is a unique moment in history when the living God walks among His people and heals their diseases and preaches good news to them. And it is not a time for mourning and fasting while Christ walks in the midst of His disciples. He does make it clear, though, that this is a moment that will not, not last forever. In fact, it won't even last long. Look at verse 20 in the text. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. What is he referring to, the bridegroom being taken away from them? Well, we who have read the Gospels through to the end, we know what he's referring to. He is referring to his own suffering that is coming. He's referring to his own trial and crucifixion, to his own death. Jesus Christ was indeed God Himself, the bridegroom finally come for His bride. God come for His people. But He had not come to rule over them and to bring peace with finality yet. He had come first to redeem them. He had come to take their sins upon Himself. He had come to go to the cross and to suffer in their place, counted among the wicked, and by His sacrifice in their place to cleanse them, to save them from their sin. The bridegroom had come first to purchase His bride from slavery to sin and death by His own blood shed for her. And that's what He was to accomplish at the cross. And so there was a moment coming for Jesus' disciples, for these wedding guests, when the bridegroom would be separated from them. When He would leave them to go alone to the cross. When they would abandon Him. And He would go to the cross. He'd go to the grave. He'd go to death in their place. At that time, Jesus says, it will be right for them to fast. It would be right for them to mourn and to grieve. And they did, friends. Those three days when Christ was in the tomb were days of profound sorrow and grief for His disciples. Until, of course, that third day when they discovered that He had risen. When they discovered that the bridegroom was not gone forever, but only for a little while. When they find the tomb empty, and that angel clothed in lightning sitting across that stone saying, why do you look for the living among the dead? Right. Then they rejoiced. Now Jesus is explaining to His critics here that His disciples aren't fasting right now because He Himself is with them. The fasting and all of the grieving and the mourning and the self-abasement that goes along with it, it is not just a religious ritual to be engaged in for the purpose of making oneself righteous or appear righteous, but rather it has everything to do with God and God's presence among His people. When He is far from them and they wait upon His deliverance, they should fast and pray, anticipating His drawing near. But when He is with them, 
They ought to celebrate and rejoice in His presence. Everything hinges on Him and where He is. There will be no fasting in the kingdom to come when we stand in the presence of our Lord. Now, all of this begs the question, though, what sort of time are we living in? Jesus tells them, and they don't fast now because I'm with them, but when I'm taken away, they'll fast. What sort of time are we in? Is our God with us? Or are we waiting for Him? Well, both. The answer is both. He is very much with us as He has promised. In Matthew 28, verse 20, at the very end with the Great Commission in the Gospel of Matthew, when He says, I will be with you to the end of the age. He does not break His promises. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says to the church, don't you know that you're the temple of the living God and He dwells in your midst? Don't you know that He's right there with you? He dwells with us by the Spirit, and so we do rejoice. This is a time of celebration. You remember the way that the Apostle Peter puts it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I'll read it to you because it is glorious. Though you have not seen Him, that is the Lord Jesus, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You rejoice because He's with you, though you can't even see Him. The Apostle Paul at the beginning of Philippians chapter 3 and the beginning of Philippians chapter 4, he tells them, rejoice. Again, I tell you, rejoice always. We rejoice because our Lord is with us and He will not leave us or forsake us. And yet, friends, at the same time, we are still waiting for Him, aren't we? In a very real sense, we are waiting for the day when He will come again in power. When He will end this age that we're living in and He will make all things new. We are waiting for the day when Christ comes and we see our bridegroom face to face again. And the moment dawns where we have sinned our very last sin. And we have wept our very last tear. And we have doubted our very last doubt. And we awake in His presence and we are satisfied with His likeness. And in fact, we are made like Him. We do wait for that, don't we? I mean, friends, imagine, imagine the relief when you who by faith have looked to Christ Jesus for all these years, when you actually awake in His presence and you see the face of that One who died for you, and held you through season after season of trial. When you see His face and look Him in the eyes, and you know that it is true, it is all true. We wait for that day, don't we? This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. He says, not only we who are waiting, it's all of creation really that's groaning and waiting. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's not for nothing that in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, the Spirit and the bride say, come. The Spirit cries out to the Lord Jesus, come. And the Spirit dwells in the midst of His people and the bride, the church, say to the bridegroom, come. He has come. And He is yet coming. We have Him already, but we do not have Him yet. Not as we will. And for that reason, friends, we understand ourselves to be in a time that is mixed with both sorrow and joy. Mixed with both fasting and celebration. In turn. And this is important for us to remember, I think. Practically speaking, it's important for us to remember the times that we're living in and what that means for us. In our age, as in every age of the church, there are and have been some who will teach and act as if the only appropriate posture for a true Christian is always deadly serious and grave and even morose. There are those who will act as if the more severe and unhappy you are, the holier you are. And that every smile and laugh among God's people is evidence of worldliness and ungodliness and levity and frivolousness. And they will judge by that standard others and their holiness. Are they as, are they as morose looking as I am? Maybe they're not very holy. There will be those who act and teach as if the gospel is not good news at all. On the other hand, friends, there are and have always been those who will teach and act as if Christians ought to be just happy, happy, happy all the time. And cruising through life with a plastered-on smile or a jokey, frivolous attitude or just dispensing you know, meaningless, positive-thinking platitudes everywhere that we go. As if for a Christian to be sorrowful and shed a tear or to be discouraged is an indication of doubt unbelief, and they will judge others by that standard. My friends, those of you that have been in the church very long, you've probably met people that fall into both of these camps. Both postures are extreme, and I do believe unbiblical. They truncate the emotional experience of the Christian as if it should all be all highs or it should all be all lows. When in reality, the real gospel, the gospel that Christ Himself preached, a real relationship with our Lord in this age does the exact opposite of truncating our emotional experience. It actually expands our experience in order that we might know both deeper sorrow and deeper joy. Some of you have experienced this in your own life. To come to Christ and to believe the gospel and to walk with Him, boy, there are deeper lows. They're deeper than they used to be. But there are higher highs. Believing the gospel and living the Christian life in this age actually expands the horizons of our emotional experience. And that's why the Christian life in this age is marked by both sorrow and by joy. And it will be until Christ comes again. As a Christian, I am holding on to two profound truths by faith. The one is that I am far worse than I ever thought I was. The other is that I am also far more loved than I ever imagined I could be. Now Christ is with me. 
And yet things are not as they ought to be yet. Not till I see His face. Even in the very worst of circumstances, we have something to rejoice about, don't we? Our Lord is with us and He has loved us and He has forgiven us our sins. Friends, I can't tell you how often this thought has been medicine to me in my life. But what about Jesus, though? Just, just, that, just the, that simple idea. What about Him? When I am the subject of criticism that I find devastating, or when I am, when I am gripped by fear about something that might happen, or when I'm feeling disappointment and loss over something that has happened, or whether I'm looking at myself and seeing nothing but failure, what about, what about the Lord Jesus, though? Where is He? What does He think? What is He like? What is His posture towards me at the moment? Oh, He is with me and He has loved me. There is a joy that comes from His presence being with me always. And yet, friends, even in the best circumstances, even when, when all the things around us in life would, would puff us up, there is something to humble us and bring tears to our eyes. And that is that things are not yet as they should be. This world is not yet as it should be. My life is not yet as it should be. And my heart towards my Lord is not as it should be. I do think this is very much what James has in mind in James chapter 1 when he is speaking to the church there and he says, verses 9 and 10, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of grass who pass away. He's saying, whatever your circumstances are, friends, if you're, if you're in high circumstances, you have a reason to be humble. If you're in low circumstances, you have a reason to be lifted up. Because these truths of the gospel are true in us. Christ is with us and He loves us. Oh, but friends, things are not like they should be yet. We should remember that, brothers and sisters, that our experience as a church is going to reflect this. There will be times of grief and sorrow in our life as a church, and there will be times of joy and gratitude. And it's not that there's something going wrong when we have one or the other. Sometimes we will study a text here on Sunday mornings together, and that text will break our hearts and cut us to the quick. And we will not feel like laughing or joking after the service. We'll feel like going through seasons of fasting and prayer together. There are other times when we'll study a text here on Sunday morning that reminds us of the gospel and the goodness of our Lord in a way that is like cool water to thirsty souls and we'll walk out of here with smiles on our faces and they should be on our faces. We'll go through seasons of celebration and joy as a church because the gospel is good news. Friends, if you're walking out of here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday with neither joy nor sorrow, you may be missing something. The Scriptures, the Lord's not messing with us. He's not manipulating us. But the Scriptures are going to elicit a response in us. And sometimes it is grief and sometimes it is rejoicing. It's not that the one is a sign of holiness and not the other. Friends, we should also remember that the Christian life in this age is marked by both joy and sorrow for each of us as individuals. And we should give room to one another 
as we walk the path of varied experience day by day and year by year. Some of us here this morning are, are here and grieving. Some of us are feeling the groaning of Romans 8, that things are not yet like they should be. Some are feeling the weight of yet unanswered prayers and the sorrow of living in a fallen world with a fallen heart inside my chest. Be careful, brothers and sisters, not to consider those who are grieving weak or criticize them or judge them as having weak faith. Some of us, on the other hand, are here this morning rejoicing. Some of us are, are feeling gratitude for our salvation. Some of us are experiencing the blessing of answered prayer. Are, are feeling the glory of the presence of our Lord in our lives and are walking around with a smile on their face. Friends, don't despise them or judge them as being frivolous or not serious enough because they're knowing something of the blessing of God at this moment. In fact, the Scriptures very clearly call us not to judge one another, but rather to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. That is Romans 12. This is part of why our experience is so broad as a church. We are part of a large family that is filled with both joy and sorrow. At any given time, pew by pew, family by family, life by life, friends, there's joy and sorrow here in this room. Some of you all, I mean, I, I feel it in my own family. Some of our, I mean, we're, we're, we're getting, our kids are getting old enough to be teenagers now. And there's a lot more experiences going on. And I sometimes, as a father, I feel torn because one of my children is grieving and one of my children's rejoicing. And and I feel the pull to be rejoicing with the one and grieving with the other. Some of you feel that way. Some of you who have been blessed with large families of adult children, you feel it sometimes so much it might be intolerable. Right? How much more so in the church, brothers and sisters? We're all around us at any given moment. There are people that are worn down by depression. There are strained marriages hanging by a thread, but there are also new babies being born. There are also relationships being reconciled by the gospel right in our midst. There are those of us who are, who are knowing the joy of God's presence in our midst. And there are those who are enduring the sorrows of His not yet having come in finality yet. Walking in the darkness of life apart from Him in this age. Brothers and sisters, don't judge one another. Sympathize. Rejoice with those who rejoice and grieve with those who grieve. Let me, let me ask you this final question here. We will come back to this text next week and consider the, the deeper answer that Christ gives in regard to the garments and the wine and the wineskins. But brothers and sisters, does your life in Christ reflect something of both sorrow and joy? Do you, know, do you know what it is to grieve and long for Christ to come? And do you also know what it is to rejoice because He's here? Friends, if you are flippant 
if you are never grieved over sin, if you are never moved to fast and pray for the lost or for, your, for the world or for your own soul, you might consider again that there is a day coming when Christ will return in power and judge the world. And his enemies will be destroyed. And he expects to find his servants, including you, faithful on that day. But friends, on the other hand, are you discouraged and hopeless? You don't remember the last time you were glad. You don't remember the last time you rejoiced. I would remind you, Christ is with you. Remember that He has promised to never leave you or forsake you. He will accompany you through the valley of the shadow of death. And He who sacrificed Himself for you will not fail to be faithful to you. The bridegroom is indeed with you. What we're about to do here in the Lord's table is a remembrance of that. It says it on the front of the table, do this in remembrance of me. Remembering that He gave Himself for us and He will not fail us until we drink this cup new with Him in the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you as we take this table together, remember Him. Remember His presence with you. And remember that He has not yet come in fullness. And we will see Him. And we will become like Him when we see Him as He is. Now let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for calling Yourself the bridegroom to Your people. And we thank You for really coming in the flesh. And it's not just a metaphor but you really came to walk among us and you really will come again in power. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that there's a day coming where as lightning passes through the sky, so you yourself will arrive and everyone will know that you are Lord and every knee will bow and tongue confess. Thank you for teaching us to bow our knees and to confess with our tongues even now by faith. And oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for being present with us by your Spirit. Thank you for making a group of sinners like this your home. You're generous to us and we praise you. Help us now to take these things, these simple things, the table with faith. We pray Christ in your name. Amen.